morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Um, happy to see you all here this morning. Uh, today's Grand Rounds is co-sponsored by the section of endocrinology. For those of you who are listening remotely, uh, our CME code for today is 7MKV. 7MKV. That's your last chance to hear it, but of course, if you need it um, later, we can get it to you. And, and, and um, this is more for the folks listening remotely, but another way of getting your CME code, if you don't um, tune in right at the very beginning of the conference, is to fill out our online evaluation. Doing that uh, also qualifies you for CME, so um, we'd always appreciate your, your evaluation comments, and um, it's an easy way to get it without having to you know, phone a friend or find out in some other way. Okay. So um, I'm happy to welcome John, uh, Jack Turco uh, to introduce today's speaker. Jack's a professor of medicine in the section of endocrinology. Well, it's good to be here. Uh, one of my goals I had when I first came here in my career was never to present at Grand Rounds. This is about as close as I've gotten. So anyways, uh, I want to welcome my good friend uh, Bob Adler back. Uh, Bob and I got to Dartmouth around the same time, in the mid-70s. 1970s, I should point out, and uh, we, uh, he be quickly became one of my most important mentors. Bob uh, went to, a few years before he came to Dartmouth, graduated from medical school at John Hopkins, and then he started his endocrine fellowship at Mass General Hospital. And then the, uh, the Berry Plan kicked in. For some of the older individuals in the audience, they know what the Berry Plan is. That was a, a letter from the U.S. Army suggesting that he join the Army. So he then finished off his fellowship at Walter Reed Hospital, and I think he attained the rank of a major. Very impressive. So Bob came in 1976 to the medical school as an uh, associate professor, and that's when our uh, paths crossed. Uh, Bob is something, this is a term you probably haven't heard a lot lately, but he was the consummate triple threat. And it's a dying breed, I must say. But as a clinician, he could deal with any endocrine case that was thrown his way. As a researcher, he had his own research lab. He's had over 150 publications. But what I thought was so cool is what he used to do. I have no surgical skills whatsoever. He used to dissect out pituitaries in these little mice and implant them under the renal capsule. Then he, the disinhibited pituitary would make, is there a medical student here who will tell us what it would make? <laughs> Prolactin. So he had the hyperprolactinemic mice that he played around with and studied bone effects and so forth. I thought that was so cool. But I think the most important legacy he left here is, was an educator. When he got here, another young uh, endocrinologist, Paul Beisinger, and he conspired to say, you know what Dartmouth needed? An endocrine fellowship. So in addition to running the SBM program, they uh, decided to create a uh, uh, a fellowship, which it endures to this day. And matter of fact, Rich Comey, who runs the fellowship, we had a meeting last week. Bob, you'd be glad to hear that we had 77 applicants for our two-year program, okay? So back in 1977 was the first year. That happened to be when I'm getting out of training. So uh, the numbers weren't that high, 77. But I can assure you the quality of the candidates was as high as ever. And somehow I battled, I battled my way through this process to be chosen as the first endocrine fellow. Now, I'm not going to tell you there was only one candidate, but that's uh, just beside the point. Um, so in 1984, Bob, his wife Ann, and his young family, Drew and Joel, 
picked up stakes in uh, Hanover and moved down to Richmond, Virginia, where he became head of the endocrine department at the VA hospital, part of the Medical College of Virginia, and he's been there ever since. Uh, I should have said, when, when I did uh, become a first-year fellow, one thing we negotiated was he agreed to leave my pituitary in place. <laughs> and in place of that, he taught me a lot about the pituitary and other issues. Uh, and I should say that fellowship was two of the best years of my professional life. Both, it was a lot of education, but it was also a lot of fun. All right. Now, the second half of Bob's career, uh, he became a, a uh, what we call a, a bonehead. Now, he didn't grow his hair long and follow a band around the South, although I think he did do that earlier on in his career. But uh, that's a very endearing term in endocrinology to call somebody a bonehead. It's somebody who really studies, practices, and treats uh, metabolic bone disease, and specifically uh, osteoporosis. And Bob still has a bone clinic down at the VA hospital. He's also been involved in um, many of the investigational uh, studies to bring new drugs to the forefront. But probably most important, he's been on some of the most important expert panels that really have developed all of the guidelines that we use to treat patients with osteoporosis. So, Bob, it really is a thrill to have you back and to see you behind the lectern uh, looking out to ready to educate a, a bunch of uh, eager uh, learners. And this is something that I remember back from 1977. So I want to welcome you here to talk to us about what's new in osteoporosis evaluation and treatment. Thank you, Jack, for that nice introduction and for uh, uh, and for uh, inviting me. See if I can deal with this. I would help you, but I have no clothes. Oh. <laughs> okay, I can. Oh, you've changed here, but not on the screen. This is you? Yeah. yeah. Okay. You good? 98% of okay, it was 98%. Okay. Well, that's not too bad for an old man. All right. So it's nice to be here. Here are my uh, disclosures. And um, here are some take home messages uh, before you fall asleep. And that is that fracture is a sentinel event. And just like a heart attack uh, means you better do something about the underlying heart disease, a bone attack, a fracture. Uh, means it's a wake-up call as well. Uh, unfortunately, we're not doing well about this. As a matter of fact, we're doing worse than we were 10 years ago. Uh, and I'll give you some reasons for it. For most patients at risk for fracture, uh, who are at moderate to high risk, oral and IV bisphosphonates generally work well and are generally well tolerated and are generally safe. For the very high-risk patient, think about anabolic treatment. And finally, osteoporosis is a chronic condition. Just like once you get the blood pressure under control, you don't stop the antihypertensive. Uh, the same is true of osteoporosis. You don't stop uh, thinking about it. You don't stop treating it most of the time. And you have to follow the patients uh, indefinitely. Another point is that osteoporosis is really common. Uh, this is old data, but it's still true today. And that is that 
Osteoporotic fractures are much more common than lots of other diseases that people worry about. Uh, this is in women, um, but it turns out that even in men, osteoporotic fracture is more common. This is annual incidence, uh, much more common than other disorders that we think about uh, in as, as well. And age is a really important risk factor for fracture. So if you take two people with exactly the same bone density, one's 55 and one's 85, the 85-year-old is going to be at much, much higher risk for a fracture than the 55-year-old. And men lag behind women by about 10 years. It's actually an opposite effect with uh, heart disease. Women have their heart attacks about 10 years after men, on average, and do worse. And most of the studies on heart disease are based on studies in men. But in osteoporosis, everything's flipped. Most of the studies have been done in women. Men have their bone attack, their fracture, about 10 years later than women in age. And they do worse. So it's, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. So there are more than a, 2 million fractures in the U.S. every year. Mortality is increased from vertebral fractures, but it's really increased from hip fractures. And I think this is one of the things that's very much uh, underrepresented, uh, and, and, and we think about it too little. Osteoporosis, particularly hip fracture, is a fatal disorder in older people. A fatal disorder. A woman who has a hip fracture has somewhere around a 15 to 20 percent one-year survival. And a man who has a hip fracture in this age bracket, about 75 to 84, has a one out of three chance of being alive, uh, excuse me, being dead by one year. So most of us don't deal with diseases or disorders that have that kind of one-year mortality. And of those who survive, half never get back to their level of independence again. So they end up in our assisted living and our nursing homes, uh, using a walker or wheelchair bound. Uh, and uh, so this is a serious disorder, and yet we think of it as, well, I just had a fall, I tripped over the dog. Uh, and, uh, and we don't think about the underlying osteoporosis. Well, as I said, we're not doing well. This is data from Medicare. This was a study we did of a 5% sample of the Medicare population. And despite the fact that our population is aging, the diagnosis of osteoporosis is actually dropping. The number of DEXA tests, dual energy x-ray absorptiometry, is dropping. Part of it is that in doctor's offices, the Medicare reimbursement for uh, uh, DEXA has dropped dramatically. The other problem is that people are scared of osteoporosis drugs. Dr. Google uh, <laughs> is a problem. As a matter of fact, there was a headline in the New York Times some months ago that said, Dr. Google is a liar. Uh, and there's a lot of truth to that, uh, but there's a lot of concern about the side effects, and I will uh, talk about them uh, shortly. 
And the consequence of this is shown by the upper curve here. Hip fracture was decreasing, but it started plateauing in 2012, despite the fact that we have good diagnostic techniques, good treatments, hip fracture no longer was dropping. And we estimated that there were per year, or excuse me, over this uh, three-year period, probably 12,000 uh, additional hip fractures that shouldn't have happened, and probably 3,000 deaths, and who knows how much suffering and money uh, because that curve was not uh, continuing. So it's a real problem. So how do we find patients? Well, um, screening for osteoporosis is still a good way to do it, and we still screen with DEXA. Um, and we can use a fracture risk calculator, which I'll show you, called FRAX. U.S. Preventative Services, uh, Preventive Services Task Force says that you should screen all women by age 65. And if they have risk factors, like they're smokers uh, or the like, you should do it younger than 65. It also says there's insufficient uh, data to recommend uh, screening in men. I disagree with that. I'll show you some data that targeted screening actually works in men. So this is for those of you who've never seen what a DEXA image is all about. Uh, this is what the hip looks like. And we measure, let's see if I can figure out. We measure the femoral neck. Uh, that's probably the key area. Uh, and it's really important because that's where a lot of the fractures are, is in the femoral neck. The other part where we see uh, fractures is the trochanter. This is a greater trochanter over here. Um, uh, and a lot of fractures uh, occur there. And it depends on how somebody falls. If they fall to the side, they may break the trochanter. If they fall front or back, they may <clears throat> break the femoral neck or maybe the trochanter. It, it depends on a lot of things. Think about this. I'm an old man, and if I fall now, and my bones aren't strong enough to prevent me from breaking a bone, I probably have osteoporosis. As a matter of fact, probably a 98% chance that that's the reason that I break a bone. So when somebody tells you, well, I just had a fall. I tripped, had a fall. Uh, and I broke my head. Uh, they almost undoubtedly particularly if they're older, have osteoporosis because the bones ought to be strong enough to survive that fall without breaking. So I mentioned this uh, risk factor calculator called FRAX. This was developed at the University of Sheffield in the UK. And you can put in a lot of risk factors that you can see here uh, for a fracture <clears throat> and calculate the 10-year a fracture risk for either hip fractures or for major osteoporotic fractures. And those are humerus, spine, hip, and forearm, or wrist. And this is like the 10-year cardiovascular risk calculator that, uh, that you are all familiar with. Uh, and it works pretty well. It works for both men and women. It's based on big epidemiological studies. And it's a way to uh, help us particularly with that group of so-called osteopenic patients. 
So we define osteoporosis as being a T-score that is a bone density that is two and a half standard deviations below the normal young mean. But it turns out that's only a small part of the population. And while it's true that those patients are at the highest risk for fracture, there are actually more fractures in the much larger group of people who have this in-between bone density that we call osteopenia, between a T-score of minus 1 and minus 2.5, that is between 1 and 2.5 and standard deviations below the normal young mean. So just because there are many, many, many more people in that group, there actually are more uh, fractures in that. And so FRAX is very helpful in trying to figure out which of the patients in that osteopenic group, that middle group, are likely to fracture. And that's where it is most helpful. It's also helpful in the worried well. You have a minor, you see they have a, a negative number when they see their bone density. Some people just don't like negative numbers. Um, and they're worried that they're going to fracture tomorrow. You can use this calculator to show that their 10-year fracture risk is really very, very low. And you may keep some people from inappropriate use of drugs for, uh, for osteoporosis. And I think that's a really important thing. So what do we know about risk factors? Well, this is a, a study from uh, the Women's Health Initiative, or one of the many studies that came out of the uh, Women's Health Initiative. And you can see here some of the things that are really important for, uh, for uh, hip fracture. Age, self-reported health, weight, height. Uh, Gloria Vanderbilt uh, used to say that you can never be too rich or too thin. Uh, you can be too thin. And it turns out that if you are really thin, you're at high risk. If you are very obese, you are also at high risk. Interestingly enough, almost a U-shaped uh, curve. Uh, race uh, and ethnicity plays a role. Physical activity, a fracture after age 54. If one of your parents had a hip fracture, particularly if it was young. So if your mother had a heart attack in her 50s or 60s, you know that you're at much higher risk. Whereas if she had a heart attack at age 88, it's much less a risk as far as your heart attack uh, uh, risk. Well, the same is true with hip fracture. If mom had her hip fracture at 95, you're probably not at higher risk. But if she had it at 75, uh, that is uh, clearly a, uh, an important risk factor. Current smoking, glucocorticoid use, meaning systemic glucocorticoid use, and diabetes. So that's what we learned. So does screening work in women? Well, the Friend of Services Task Force uh, uh, advocated screening of women really without a heck of a lot of data to, uh, to show that it worked. But there's a recent study from uh, the UK where they screened half of a 12,000 population study and the other uh, group they did not screen at all. And what they did is they calculated fracs without doing a bone density. And you can do this using body mass index as a surrogate for the DEXA. If the patient was at low risk by this 
easy, quick calculation, they patted the patient on the back and sent them out and didn't do anything more. If their risk was higher than the mean for their age, they went ahead and did a DEXA, recalculated FRACs with the DEXA, and if they were at increased risk by either the DEXA or the FRACs, they treated them. And in this study, they showed that those that went through this screening process actually had fewer fractures. So it worked. Well, what about men? As I said, the Preventive Services Task Force says we can't come to any conclusion. So we did a study. This was led by uh, Kathleen colon Emerit from uh, the Durham VA and uh, Duke University, looking at the entire VA male database. And uh, VA really is a great place to do this kind of health services uh, research. And we found that among men who had a, a DEXA uh, in general, uh, getting the DEXA did not decrease fracture. However, if there was targeted DEXA testing, that is, if the patient was on systemic glucocorticoids, was on androgen deprivation therapy for prostate cancer, was over uh, 80, was 80 years or older, was uh, met the VA guidelines, uh, which included a, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of the same risk factors that we saw in the women's health, or if they had a high FRAX using that BMI body mass index instead of bone density, then if you screen those patients, then the um, uh, the screening led to fewer fractures. One of the reasons that uh, this group didn't have this was that adherence to osteoporosis medications was terrible. Uh, even in the VA where there's no financial barrier to the, the medications, uh, patients were stopping medications. Well, just think about this for a minute. The patients who had a heart attack uh, have about a 50% chance of staying on a statin after a year. Why? Well, because then they can deal with it. Same is true with most osteoporosis medications. Now, Doc, this stuff doesn't make me feel better, so I stopped taking it. Uh, I think this happens a lot in this matter of fact. One quarter of patients who are given a, a, a prescription for bisphosphonate never fill it, and about half are still on bisphosphonates at the end of one year of treatment. So because it's an asymptomatic disorder until you fracture, uh, we're really at, uh, uh, we're really looking for ways to getting our patients to uh, take these medications. So what are the risk factors for men? Well, they're a little bit different than what we saw with the Women's Health Initiative. And this is from the Mr. Oz study. So this is not the VA. Uh, this is a, a mostly white, reasonably well-educated, relatively healthy population of men over 65 who've now been followed for 10 to 12 years. Age, again, really important. Less protein in the diet. I had uh, breakfast at Lou's this morning. Uh, I can tell you that... Uh, I had a low-protein breakfast. <laughs> um, uh, any fracture after age 50. Divorce. Think about that. That's peculiar to men, not women. Tricyclic antidepressants, hypoglycemic agents, height loss, hyperthyroidism, Parkinson's disease, and I think you could expand this to other mobility disorders, 
inability to, to do chair stands. When we see patients in the clinic, we have them cross their arms while they're sitting and stand up. If they can't do it, they're at higher fracture risk. And as a matter of fact, there are studies looking at the number of times somebody can do the chair stands in a certain amount of uh, uh, seconds, uh, and that's uh, one way to assess lower body strength and works well. Uh, and current, uh, a decreased cognitive uh, activity, current smoking. So when you add those risk factors to the DEXA, the incidence of hip fracture goes way up. So if you have one risk factor, let's say you're over uh, 75, so you have one risk factor. But if you have four risk factors, you have five times as high the risk for hip fracture. So if you add those risk factors to DEXA, you're going to find those patients who are the most likely to benefit from your treatment. So our goal of treatment is not to increase the bone density, although that's a nice thing and, and, and helps us, but it's really fracture risk reduction. So sometimes, and I don't have time to talk about secondary osteoporosis, but sometimes treatment of the underlying cause, whether it's celiac disease uh, or the like, hyperthyroidism, that sometimes is enough, at least in the short run. But remember that people with these disorders age, and so they may develop garden variety, age-associated osteoporosis years later, in addition to their secondary. And here are the list of the uh, drugs that we have for osteoporosis, and I'm going to talk about them a little bit. The ones that have been used the most are the anti-resorptives, bisphosphonates. And what they do is they decrease osteoclast activity. Osteoclasts are the cells that gobble up bone and allow the osteoblasts to catch up. Many people don't realize that the skeleton is a very active uh, tissue. There's about 10% turnover every year. And what this does is the change over time, as we get older, the osteoclasts sort of outrun the osteoblasts. And by turning off the osteoclasts with drugs like bisphosphonates, it allows these osteoblasts to catch up. We reduce uh, spine fracture by about half, and we reduce hip and other uh, fractures about by a third. We do not cure osteoporosis. We have no cures for osteoporosis. We can make things better, but we don't cure it, and that's one of our problems. However, there are rare side effects. And if you listen to the news, you would think that the side effects are much more common than the good uh, outcomes. So the dilemma facing the clinician is we have millions of people with osteoporosis or osteopenia and high fracture risk. Remember, there are more than 2 million osteoporotic fractures every year in the United States. And we have an aging population, and we're going to have more. Bisphosphonates decrease fracture risk. The treatment is for a long time, but we don't know how long. But concern for those side effects has lowered adherence even further, so that today a minority of women with postmenopausal osteoporosis are being treated. After fracture, fewer being treated than 10 years ago. And men are even less likely than women to be, uh, to be treated. So. What about the side effects? Well, here are some of the 
ones that I call mild, avoidable, or rare. We don't give oral bisphosphonates to people whose GERD is not under control or if they have achalasia or some other esophageal motility problem. We can use intravenous bisphosphonates in those patients. However, the acute phase reaction is seen usually after just the first treatment with an intravenous uh, bisphosphonate. This is a flu-like syndrome. I give my patients a little instruction sheet. I tell them to take some acetaminophen and be well hydrated at the time of the infusion and uh, most of them do well. I have, of the hundreds I've treated, I have a handful who say, Doc, I'll never take that drug again. So that sometimes it is severe, but it's unusual. Hypocalcemia is unusual too with the IV bisphosphonates. If you check the calcium beforehand, if renal function is decent, and if the vitamin D level is at least 30 nanograms per ml. So most of the time, we don't have a problem with that. A renal toxicity, again, you can treat with bisphosphonates pretty much down to CKD4 uh, if you're careful, and it should not be a problem. There is an idiosyncratic inflammatory eye disease. I've seen two cases, uh, one with an oral alendronate, one with ibizolodronic acid. I can't predict it. It responds well to prednisone, although I don't like giving prednisone to somebody who's got osteoporosis to begin with, uh, but it's a short course. Uh, and uh, again, it's just one of those idiosyncratic reactions. There's been question about whether esophageal cancer is associated with oral bisphosphonates. If the patient is worried about that, you can give that patient an IV bisphosphonate. Uh, the data are not very strong for that. There is a uh, some suggestion that atrial fibrillation may be seen with that, but again, uh, it's not bad enough that there's a boxed warning or anything like that. We don't think it's common. Uh, I've not seen it, but there may be a slight increase. But the two side effects that have gotten in the news and uh, all over the internet are osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femoral fractures. I can tell you that the dentists in Richmond, Virginia, believe that osteonecrosis of the jaw is the number one public health menace in the United <laughs> States today. And there are some dentists who will not see a patient, even to do a cleaning, if they're on a bisphosphonate. Uh, this is paranoia. Uh, the chances of osteonecrosis of the jaw in a patient on bisphosphonate for osteoporosis is about one out of 10,000. So I tell patients that their chance of getting that is about the same as getting struck by lightning. Uh, it's not zero, but it's not common. And as a matter of fact, the American Dental Association says, if you can get the dental work done first before you start the patient, and we, we try to do this as best we can, but as you know, dental care is a real problem in the United States. A lot of patients don't have dental insurance, and if they do, it's not so hot anyhow. The cost of dental work is very high, uh, and it's often the patients who have the least, who have the worst teeth, and it's a real problem. But if possible, we try to get people their dental work while we're getting their vitamin D up, while we're making sure they're getting adequate calcium in their diet, where we're getting them in the exercise program and the like. 
and then try to start the bisphosphonate after that. If that's not possible, or if they're on the bisphosphonate already, the ADA says keep it up. One of the reasons they do is that the terminal half-life of most bisphosphonates is measured in months to years. So even if you stop for a couple of months, they still have bisphosphonate in their body. And it's because bisphosphonates are deposited in bone and gradually come out over time. And so it's very different than all the other uh, osteoporosis medicines that we have. But the one that's really caused the most gnashing of teeth is atypical femoral fractures. The etiology is still unclear. It occurs in people who've never had a bisphosphonate or other osteoporotic drug. And we don't know what the background incidence is. One of the reasons is there's never been an ICD-9 or ICD-10 code for atypical femoral fractures. That's one of the problems. We think there are probably about five cases per 10,000 patient years. And we think that we um, prevent a lot of fractures for everyone that may be caused. And this number of 30 to 100, I think, is uh, probably conservative in some other uh, uh, estimates. Uh, as many as 1,000 fractures are prevented for everyone that is uh, caused. The incidence does increase with the duration of bisphosphonate therapy. And I'll show you the geometry of the femur may be important. So let's look at what this uh, looks like. It's, it's a terrible fracture. They all start on the lateral aspect of the femur. And if you look here on the treated one, this is the very first uh, finding, the so-called periosteal reaction. And so there sort of looks a little like a beak. Um, and that's uh, what happens here. And this is what you see at first. And then there's this line that goes across, and it's called the dreaded black line. Uh, and most of the time, the fractures go uh, straight across. Sometimes they'll become oblique, as it did here. And there will be this spike on the medial aspect of the femur. Uh, and with those characteristics, uh, in a patient who's been on bisphosphonate, we call that atypical uh, femoral fracture. They all occur below the trochanter and all the way down the shaft of the femur. And you can see from the hardware that's been put in this patient that this is a big deal and that the rehabilitation from it can last up to a year. Uh, so it's really tough and to talk to a patient. I'm gonna give you some medicine to keep you from breaking your bones but you might break your bones in a funny way because of the medicine. Uh, so you can imagine the conversation is going to be difficult. The good news is this doesn't happen often, and we're hoping that we can find ways to make it happen even less often. So what do we know about it? Well, these seem to be something like stress fractures. There's suppression of bone turnover because of the drugs. There may be increased microcracks in the bone. There may be impaired fracture healing right in those microcracks. But the geometry of the bone turns out to be really important. 
and genes may play a role. Let me tell you about the geometry. One clue to it is that these are sometimes bilateral and happen usually at the same exact spot on both femurs at the same time. And they're always on the lateral aspect. Anybody who has, a, has pelvic geometry such that there's a lot of tension on the lateral aspect of the femurs turns out to be at higher risk. Well, people who have bowing of the femur are at higher risk. The geometry of the pelvis of women whose ancestors came from Korea or China or Japan that seems to be different from that of Caucasian women. And they are at much higher risk for these atypical fractures, even those that have moved to the United States and those that are still living in that part of the world. So the, any geometry, varus formation, a short angle between the femoral neck and the femoral shaft uh, seem to put people at higher risk. So one of the things that we're doing is a single uh, energy image of the entire femur at the time of DEXA. This is a very low dose uh, uh, x-ray and sometimes you see a little something, this periosteal uh, reaction uh, in the femur. If we see that, we send the patient for a complete set of x-rays and some of the time it's possible to catch this, treat the patient with an anabolic drug and prevent the full fracture from happening. William, you have a question? So what's the frequency of that? Good question. We don't know yet. I've done only a hundred of these so far. I have picked up one abnormality, but when we did full x-rays, they were normal. So I don't think we know the answer yet. Um, the frequency is low. We think it's you know in the range of one to five cases per 10,000, so I may never see any of these. Um, you know, I, we do 13 to 1,500 bone densities a year. I may, I may never see a case of this. Okay? Will it make the patient be reassured and adhere to their medicine better if they know that we've done this at the time of their death? So it takes about 10 seconds to do this. Very, very low radiation. Will it reassure them? And actually, we're doing a performance improvement project to see whether we get better adherence if we reassure the patients that way. So I don't know the answer yet, but this may be one thing. Well, do you do it bilaterally? We have not been doing it bilaterally. We've been just doing it on the side that we've been doing the DEXA. Uh, it takes more time to get the patient uh, set so that we could do it bilaterally. The other thing that may be a tip-off is that our patient, or the patients who get this may have a prodrome of groin or thigh pain. So when our patients come back to our clinic for follow-up of their osteoporosis on one of these drugs, we look at their teeth, we ask them about their, uh, whether they have any dental issues, and we also ask them specifically about thigh or groin pain. And that <coughs> supposedly will help us uh, pick uh, that up. And we've had a couple patients who've had sort of nonspecific pain. We've x-rayed them and have not found atypical fractures, but that is how we're trying to prevent these from happening. So that's the limited tools we have. So 
What are the long-term data? How do we decide how long to treat people? Well, it's actually based on only two studies. Uh, this is, um, I'm going to show you two, uh, show you one of them here. And this is a study with alendronate, where after five years of alendronate, the patients were re-randomized to either more alendronate or to stop alendronate, go on a drug holiday for five years, basically. So one thing you notice right away is that bone density goes up over the first five years, uh, but then plateaus. Uh, whereas if you stop the alendronate, bone density goes down. With zoledronic acid, the differences between those who got three infusions of zoledronic acid versus those who got six, so that they were re-randomized after three years for three more years of uh, annual infusions or three years of um, uh, placebo infusions, uh, there isn't much difference in their uh, bone density. But the key is shown here in this next slide, and that is in the alendronate trial, there were fewer clinical vertebral fractures in those patients who continued alendronate for 10 years. And in the uh, zoledronic acid uh, study, excuse me, there were fewer morphometric, that is x-ray, um, uh, fractures of the spine. So it looks like staying on treatment does continue to lower uh, a fracture risk. But the studies were small, and these are the only discontinuation studies we really have, so it's not much data. So what do we do about a drug holiday? As I said, the data are sparse. They're basically the placebo uh, arms of the studies that I just showed you. There are some observational studies. They haven't been terribly helpful. What do you do? How do you decide whether to, to, uh, uh, to keep patients on treatment? Well, this is the biggest uh, observational trial. And this was from uh, Kaiser in Southern California. And uh, they had uh, a, a lot of patients in it. And they defined a drug holiday those patients who stopped bisphosphonate for at least a year, those who took at least 50% of their meds, that's not a lot, but at least 50% of the meds all the time, they called those persistent. And those that stopped, but stopped for less than a year, they called non-persistent. And these are the fractures that they found. Uh, they found that those who went on drug holiday, shown in blue, um, didn't have any more fractures than those that were persistent or non-persistent. Actually, those who were the non-persistent, that is, they would stop, but for less than one year, and they'd start for a little while and stop again, uh, those uh, patients had the most fractures. So that's not very good data, I'm afraid, but this is the largest uh, observational trial we have. When you're dealing with a chronic disease, it's really hard to get good data. The other thing I want to show you is that when you give one infusion of the IV bisphosphonate zoledronic acid, it lasts for a long time. And if you look at just the upper panel here, this is the bone density in a person, a woman given one infusion of zoledronic acid. And bone density goes up and stays up for up to three years. Uh, so... Uh, this uh, led to a study in women with this in-between uh, diagnosis of osteopenia. 
but some of them had already had a fracture. So I'd call those women uh, having osteoporosis. And they received four infusions of zoledronic acid over six years. So not annual infusions, but rather four spread out over six years. And it worked. There were fewer fractures in those women who got this uh, dosing uh, pattern, not the annual infusion, saved money by spreading them out. And indeed, my standard now is to treat with zoledronic acid once every 18 to 20 months so that everybody gets at least five years of treatment with bisphosphonate. So five years of oral bisphosphonate or three infusions of zoledronic acid spaced out over five years. And then at five years, we decide whether they're still at risk, and if they are, we continue treatment. If their risk has decreased, uh, we may give them a drug holiday. I can't tell you this is the, the right thing to do, but it's one way that we uh, go about this long-term management. We see the patients each year, however, and ask them about new risk factors. Have they started an aromatase inhibitor? Have they been put on prednisone? Uh, have they been falling more? Have they developed Parkinson's disease? Is there something else that puts them at higher risk? Well, that's a patient I might keep on the bisphosphonate after five years. The one who has a good response is now an active person. We've gotten them in an exercise program and are doing well. That's the person I would consider for a drug holiday for a year or two. What about the other agents? I don't have time to talk about them a lot. I'm going to show you a little bit of data. The key is they're all different from bisphosphonates. Bisphosphonates get deposited in bone. They gradually lose their effectiveness. With all the other medicines, the time you stop, the patient starts losing bone right away, right away, because none of them are deposited in bone. So when you stop, the patient immediately is going to start increasing fracture risk. So what about uh, estrogen? Well, we actually learned from the Women's Health Initiative that hormone replacement therapy lowers uh, hip fracture risk. It works. Uh, but it's FDA only approved for uh, prevention. What about raloxifene? Uh, raloxifene is a CIRM, selective estrogen receptor modulator, uh, also known as an estrogen agonist antagonist. Uh, it decreases a spine fracture. It decreases breast cancer risk. Uh, it's not associated with the uh, bad side effects of the bisphosphonates, but it doesn't decrease hip fracture risk. It does increase VTE and may worsen uh, hot flushes. Denosumab is an antibody to rank ligand. It's given as an injection, subcutaneous injection, every six months. It works really well. And unlike bisphosphonates, this is eight-year data, but unlike bisphosphonates, bone density continues to rise for up to 10 years now, we have data, uh, with uh, denosumab. It looks like it's more potent than uh, bisphosphonates. It, too, has been associated with osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femoral fractures. But it is a, uh, a drug to think about. It has the advantage that it's uh, easy to, to get, uh, easy to take. Uh, that is, no increased pill burden. The patient comes in and gets an injection every six months. 
and uh, but it has this quick off, as I said. And as shown here on this next slide, if you look at the upper panel, the upper line here, this is a patient who's been on denosumab for about eight years and then stops, and you can see that the bone density drops right away. Well, what's even more worrisome is shown here. This is a study of women who stopped denosumab for eight to 16 months, and in 24 women, there were 112 vertebral fractures in this short time period after stopping denosumab. So you can't stop. You either have to transfer them to a bisphosphonate or another kind of treatment, or you have to continue them indefinitely. So if you have a 65-year-old in front of you who's got osteoporosis, you better think twice about starting denosumab because you better have a, an idea of what you're going to do in a few years because you're probably not going to treat them with denosumab from age 65 to 95. Uh, whereas if it's a 90-year-old, I don't feel so bad about starting denosumab, but it's something to think about uh, for, for sure. Uh, one uh, study su suggested that we could give zoledronic acid uh, after denosumab we really don't know how to do this yet. We're hoping that there's going to be some more, uh, uh, more uh, data on this. I don't have time to go into this question, and that is, should you treat the oldest old? Uh, the answer is, based on the data we have so far, the answer is yes. Uh, and, uh, and these drugs seem to work well. And actually, when you think about it, the older you are, the greater your chance of having a fracture. So you probably get more bang for the buck by uh, treating the oldest old. Well, what about anabolic drugs? Anabolic drugs work differently. They turn on osteoblasts. They actually improve the, uh, the microarchitecture of bone, and they really do work. The problem is they cost a lot, and two of them have to be given as a daily subcutaneous injection. Now, I deal with uh, mostly men, although my bone clinic is about 30% female. And I can tell you, it's the biggest guys who fought in wars who are the most afraid of the needle. <laughs> Don't give me the needle. Uh, and, you know, it's a little pen device with a tiny little needle. It doesn't hurt, but it's a needle. And so this is a problem with, uh, with uh, teriparatide and avaloparatide. The newest drug, uh, which I'll show you in a minute, uh, romazosumab, is given as a subcutaneous injection in the doctor's office every month. Uh, so it's much more convenient uh, than the daily. The other point about this is shown at the very bottom line here, and that is when you stop, you must convert them to an anti-resorptive because all the good you've done over the year or two that you've treated with the anabolic is going to go right away if you don't follow it up with an anti-resorbent. <laughs> so let me show you uh, this data. This is a baloparatide, uh, uh, the newer of the PTH-like uh, compounds. Uh, it uh, increases spine bone density probably a little bit better than teriparatide, uh, particularly in the hip. And here is the newest one. This is romazosumab. Romazosumab is an antibody to uh, sclerostin. Sclerostin affects the Wnt pathway and it turns it off. And by inhibiting this inhibitor, uh, bone formation increases markedly. 
And the bone density increase is remarkable. This is what a lendronate does, shown in blue. In one year, the spine goes up uh, at about 5%, so that's nice. But you get an almost 14% increase in the spine with romazosumab. And in the hip, there's doubling, at least doubling, of the impact on bone density. Now, I can't tell you that in long-term studies, lots of head-to-head -head studies, I'm going to show you one, that there are fewer fractures. There is a short-term data here that there actually are fewer fractures at 12 and 24 months with romazosumab, which costs $1,800 a month versus a lendronate, which is, in essence, free. Uh, so you can imagine which of those two drugs your insurance company is going to want you to use. Uh, but clearly, there, this seems to be a better way to go. The insurance companies also want you to have the patient fail the cheap drug before starting the anabolic expensive drug. Well, in general, that doesn't work. With teriparatide, if you, um, if you start teriparatide after the patient has been on a bisphosphonate, bone density actually goes down a little bit. It's not so with romazosumab. That looks like it's the only anabolic uh, that uh, will uh, increase bone after a patient has been on a bisphosphonate. And finally, as I mentioned before, when you stop these drugs, bone density goes down right away. So this is a study of uh, romazosumab versus placebo. We don't have time to talk about the placebo, but this is what happens with, uh, with romazosumab. Bone density goes up very nicely, uh, the first year, a little bit more after the second year, if you stop, bone density drops precipitously. If you follow it up with a bit, an anti-resorptive, in this case, denosumab, it continues to go up. So, again, if you use these drugs, you have to follow them. <clears throat> so we ought to have a sequence of therapy with better response with anabolics first, then follow it with an anti-resorptive. And maybe our future treatment is for the high-risk patient. We use anabolics first, then maybe denosumab, then maybe bisphosphonates. I can't tell you that that's going to work for sure. It's really hard to do the kinds of studies that are necessary. I was just at a conference at the NIH and trying to convince the NIH and others to fund the kinds of studies that are needed to do this, they're very expensive and very, very hard to do. I don't think it'll ever happen. What about non-pharmacologic therapy? Well, one of the things to do is to get as much skeletal growth as you can. And I'm always looking for a reason to show pictures of my grandchildren. This is my granddaughter at age 22 uh, and a half, and she's running around outside instead of staring at a screen, sitting down. Um, and this is what kids need to be doing in order to get the biggest skeleton possible. And the reason is, the more you have, the more you have to lose. Uh, and so, uh, one of the reasons I haven't retired is, we're going to have a new generation who spends their entire day with their noses in screens, not exercising, uh, not gaining the kind of skeleton they ought to have and uh, they're going to be at higher risk for fracture later on. Calcium and vitamin D do modestly decrease fracture risk. 
And then fall risk reduction is really important. Uh, there should be no, um, no extension cords to trip over at a house. Uh, loose rugs. Pets cause fractures, cause falls and fractures, I'm afraid. Uh, it's not uncommon. Uh, good vision. There's actually a study that shows if you get your patient to get their cataracts fixed, they have fewer fractures. Uh, walking aids. It's hard to get men to use walking aids, but a lot of them need it. Home safety is really important. Night lights, uh, for example. So, what do you do? Well, you try to maximize the benefit to risk ratio. Pick those people who are at highest risk for fractures and try to prevent hip fractures particularly because of the high mortality and of those who survive half lose their independence. And try your best to minimize the side effects uh, by choosing the patients to some extent we don't have any good morphologic ways on exam to determine somebody's uh, hip fracture uh, geometry, but I hope we get there. So my approach today is, is your patient at high risk? Are there ways you can mitigate the risk factors for the side effects and try to treat the patient with the highest benefit risk ratio with a comprehensive approach? For those highest risk patients, Use the anabolics first if you can. Tell the patient, and we do every time we see them, you're going to be treated for at least five years. Uh, I can't tell you the number of people who get the first prescription filled and they come back three, at three months and say, oh, oh, I didn't know that I had to take it for more than that first prescription. It's really a problem. Keep talking to them and keep testing uh, every two years. My practical approach is for the patients with uncomplicated uh, osteoporosis, the alendronate or zoledronic acid work well. Treat them for at least five years and then test them every uh, two years. For the borderline ones, try to convince them to hold off for a couple years, repeat the DEXA at two to three years, or send them to one of us boneheads and we'll talk them out of uh, treatment. For the high-risk patients, those are the ones that ought to be referred also if you're not comfortable with using the anabolics. So the take-home messages are fracture is a sentinel event. We're not doing a good job. We've got a lot of ground to make up. The moderate-risk patients we can handle with bisphosphonates, they're inexpensive. They work for most people. For the very high risk, they need the anabolics first. Osteoporosis is a chronic disorder. The patients need to be followed indefinitely. I want to thank uh, Jack Turco for inviting me, and I want to show you that in the 35 years since I've been here, I have changed not at all. And, uh, thank you for your attention.